Uh, I have kind of been over the last 30 seconds or so debating on how to get um, started, and I just want to, I think I've decided I just want to pray. Um, you know, as we gather together this morning, I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that if you follow Jesus, your life is going to be easy and free from struggle and pain. Um, but I don't think Scripture actually promises that. There are lots of places that will tell you that, um, but I don't think that that's actually found in Scripture. I think what we find in Scripture is the reality that God meets us in the midst of our trouble and sees us through those things. Um, this Over the last, gosh, I don't know, at this point, maybe 10 days or so, there have been several um, significantly heavy things within our church family that have taken place um, that I... I wish that I could share all of the things with you. I don't, I don't have permission to be able to do that, but um, I just want you to know there are people that are hurting, and they need us in our petitions and, and prayers. Um, and so before we get into the message, I just want us to... Bring our hearts together before the Lord. Father, I, um, as we come before you, I think about the, the song that we just sang and your goodness and your love that is never failing. And God, we believe those words. And we declare those words on behalf of some families in our church that have just, I mean, just gone through the ringer this week. God, there are certainly events that happen in our lives that we don't understand, we don't, and we can cry out why. I'm so thankful for just the the example that we see in the Psalms that allows us to like, be honest with the way that we feel, knowing that you can handle that. Um, and so, God, I, I just I, I ask that you meet each of us where we are. I know that there are different um, struggles that we all have, different burdens that we carry as we gather together this morning, and I pray that you would... Um, extend grace and mercy. I'm so thankful for the promise that we read in Hebrews that says you give us grace and mercy just in the nick of time. When it seems like we can't go on anymore, you give that to us. And I know, Father, that there are families who are struggling, and I pray that you would give grace and mercy to them. Father, I pray for us as we spend a few minutes in your word today with um, in light of what we're talking about, I, I pray, Father, that you would give us insights, that we would sense the leading of your Spirit in us to understand the life that you have called us to. Um, and so, Father, I just pray that you would continue to meet with us today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, so I know we've got several guests who are here, and so if you are a guest with us this morning, thanks for um, choosing to worship with us. 
Uh, my name is Bill, and it is my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. We love it when new folks come, and um, so I want you to know after the service this morning, if you do have questions about the church or anything that you hear, um, I would love to, to spend a few minutes with you. I'll be out at the information table at the, um, straight out in the lobby. Um, we'd love to visit with you for a few minutes, um, and so just really glad that you are here. I want to tell you a little bit about our new message series this morning. So... The Room Where It Happens is a, a song from the musical Hamilton. I don't know how many of you have seen that, if you've seen that at all. But in the song, it's Alexander Hamilton declaring his desire to be in the room where decisions are made. As the, our nation is being formed, uh, laws are being talked about, and really even just the structure and function of the government. He wants to be in on those conversations. If he could just be in the room where it happens... So our series title is kind of a take on that. It's called The Room Where It Happened, past tense. As we look at the life of Jesus, it's really interesting to see that we have a lot more material that covers the end of Jesus' life than we do the beginning. And when you stop and think about it, it makes sense because of the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. We can be brought into a relationship with God that should change everything about us and last forever. And so we have a lot of material at the end of Jesus' life. In fact, scholars have given timelines of the events of the last week of Jesus' life, what we refer to as the Passion Week, because we know what Jesus did nearly every single day the last week of his life. It was on Thursday that Jesus gathered with his disciples in what we refer to as the upper room to celebrate the Passover. Can you imagine what it was like to be in the room where it happened? Where Jesus took the bread and broke it and passed it to his disciples and shared with them it represents his body that was broken. And he took the cup and in the same way, passed it to the disciples and shared with them that it represents his blood that was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And as they were eating together, he said, do this to remember me. Can you imagine what it was like to be in that same room when Jesus turned to Peter, who at that point was really the leader of the disciples, and Jesus told him that Peter would deny knowing Jesus not once but three times by the next dawn, or what it would have been like to be in the room where it happened as Jesus leaned over to Judas, the one who would betray him, and said, whatever you do, go do it quickly. It's the room where it happened. Likely all of us have been influenced by the American dream even if we're not able to specifically articulate what the American dream is. The American dream actually is a term that was first coined by a man named James Truslow Adams in 1931, and he defined it this way. He said, It's the ability for everyone to have a richer, fuller, better life and to achieve according to their own ability, regardless of social class or circumstances at birth. Jeff, we'll see you in a couple minutes. 
it's interesting, articles, many articles have been written over the years to describe how the, the American dream has evolved over the decades. And in fact, the Bush Center recently published an article that described the American dream today in this way. It said it's upward mobility and the ability to achieve enough economic success to have a comfortable life. And, and I would say that growing out of that understanding of the American dream are three guiding values. Those three guiding values being comfort or stability, comfort, and enjoyment in that order. And I think all of us in some ways have been influenced by those values, maybe at least from a financial perspective, an economic perspective, those values are the things that guide what we do. Stability, comfort, and enjoyment. Because from the time that we are young, somebody, or maybe it's just even society itself, taught us that what we are supposed to do is get a job so that we can have a steady income, giving us stability. So that we don't have to worry about how to put food on our table. And then once we are able to have that stability, then the next thing that we want is comfort. So what do we add to be able to have a comfortable life, live a comfortable life where we're free from stress as much as possible? And then if we're lucky enough to have a comfortable life, then the next thing that we want is enjoyment. So then we begin to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we need or what do we want so that we can then enjoy life, living according to these values of stability, comfort, and enjoyment? But what if I were to tell you that those values that I think guide much of what we do in life don't actually provide life, but they actually are leading to our death. Jesus once said, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. And I think in part what Jesus was saying is, if all we do is live according to the values of this world, stability, comfort, and enjoyment, as we are pursuing those things, we won't actually find what we're looking for because they don't provide life, they actually only lead to our death. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And he later said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. It's in the room where it happened, the upper room, that I believe Jesus gives us a new set of values that should guide our lives. So rather than living according to the values of stability comfort, and enjoyment, he calls us to live a life of humility, service, and sacrifice. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the events and the teachings of Jesus in the upper room, and we begin this morning by looking at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. And I'll read that here in a second. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Um, or if you have the Uversion Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. This is John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper... 
the devil, had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel around him. Came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, you don't realize, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, as ju- do just as I have done for you. I think it's difficult for us to understand the significance of the event of the foot washing. Even if you've heard this story before, been taught it before, even then we know it's a big deal, but for us I think it's really difficult to understand, again, just the, the, the deep significance of what took place. Because the culture of the first century is very different than our culture today. The culture of first century Israel was an honor-shame culture. And so it was an honor to honor someone of honor. You did everything that you could to make sure that someone of honor wasn't dishonored. That's why Peter says what he did. You never wash my feet because he knew this was a dishonorable act. He was trying to keep Jesus from doing something that would dishonor him. But yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Can you imagine what the disciples thought or how they felt as they walked into the room and they saw Jesus take off his outer coat and wrap a towel around his waist and get down on his knees and begin to wash the feet of the disciples? They probably didn't know what to think, paralyzed by what was taking place in front of them. Because this isn't just something that didn't happen, it was something that would never happen happen. Because according to traditional teaching, this foot washing was not something that you could force a Jewish slave to do. It was something that you could only force a Gentile slave to do, right? You get the person from another culture who you feel like is below you, you make them do that because that's how difficult it is. But yet, here is Jesus, the Lord, the rabbi, getting down on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. It says in verse 3, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that last phrase, to the end, could really be understood in two different ways. It could be understood in a temporal sense, that he loved them to the end of his life, or it could be viewed in a qualitative sense, that this is how much he loved them. And I, I think that's the one 
that fits the context better, that what Jesus was doing was showing the disciples the full extent of his love, just how much he loved them. Because the disciples had a problem. It was a problem that Jesus had to address. And their problem was a focus on themselves. And it wasn't just an isolated problem. It wasn't a problem with one or two of the disciples. It was a problem that every one of them had as they were likely thinking throughout their time as a follower of Jesus, what's in this for me? What do I get out of being a disciple of Jesus? Likely thinking about the values of stability, comfort, and enjoyment. One day, as they were walking on the road, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. Later, two of the disciples, James and John, they sent their mother to Jesus to ask for the positions of highest honor when he established his kingdom. And Jesus said to those guys, I don't think you want to drink the cup that I'm getting ready to drink. Is that focus on self. Jesus had addressed this before. He had talked with them before, trying to help them to see that that's not what life was truly about. But now, as he is literally hours before his death, he knows he has to leave them with something, a picture, an image, something that would, they would never forget, that would help them to see that the life that Jesus had called them to was so dramatically different than what they were thinking. And that's why Jesus got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. It was to help them to see, help us to see that the life that Jesus has called us to is countercultural. Because the life that Jesus has called us to is not one guided by stability, comfort, and enjoyment, but by humility, service, and sacrifice. Because the life that Jesus called us to, ultimately this act, it's not just about one thing or doing one thing. This is truly a way of life. Because what Jesus does is shows us that we are to take the things that we have, the influence that we have, the privilege that we have, the power that we have, and lay it down for the sake of other people. I would submit to you that in reality, as Jesus says, hey, at the end of this section, do this like I have done for you. But I would submit it has nothing to do with foot washing. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more than just that, but that's the way that we typically think. We think, just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. What's the checklist that I have to follow and I'll follow it? And so we think, well, whose feet do I have to wash? Just tell me, I'll get it done and I'll be fine. Or you might think, well, okay, so foot washing, that was a a past practice, a cultural thing. We don't do that anymore. So we say, hey, Whose toilet do I have to clean? I'll go do it. You just tell me what it is and I'll do it. But the problem is it isn't about one thing or some things. It's not a checklist to follow, but it's a radical reorientation of our lives. Now, some churches will do foot washings and services sometimes. And that's fine if if people want to do that. 
But I think they often do that without ever actually living out the values that Jesus lays out for us in this event. Because Jesus took his power, his privilege, his role, and he laid it down, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the disciples. And that's what Jesus calls us to. It's to live according to his example. And it's really the example that Jesus lived out throughout his entire life. It's in Philippians chapter 2, where I believe really what the Apostle Paul does is is takes the the meaning, the application of this foot-washing event and even broadens it out a little bit for us. Because he says this in Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who though he was equal with God, so he's equal with the Father, did not consider to be equality with God something that he needed to hold on to. But he was willing to let go of those things, to take upon himself the form of a servant, where he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And what what Paul is writing about in Philippians 2 is the reality that Jesus let go of his position of privilege and authority as the Son of God laying down those things, and He did it for our benefit. And that's the life that He calls us to. And so the question that we have to wrestle with is, what does it look like for us on a daily basis to take the power that we have, the authority that we have, the time that we have, the privilege that we have, how do we take those things that we have been given and use them not for our benefit, but for the sake of other people. As you think about that, I think it's really easy to just default back to the nice little checklist. We need to give, we need to serve, and we need to do those things. But it's not just about those things, because this is a way of life. It's a way of life that is challenging because it is so countercultural. I mean, I'll be honest, I have been wrestling through the significance of this in, in my own mind and heart over the last week, thinking about this, and I struggle to come up with a clear application because it is so different than the way that we live. Jesus once said, when you go to a wedding, don't sit at the place of highest honor. It's pretty embarrassing if somebody else more honorable comes in and they say, hey, bud, you got to move it down to the end of the table. He says, sit at the end of the table and have them say, friend, come up here. This is where you're supposed to sit. But what does our culture say? Sit at the head of the table. Act like you belong. Fake it till you make it, because what are the chances that somebody is going to actually ask you to move? We live in a world where it seems like self-promotion is the only way to get ahead, and we do that for the sake of our own benefit. But Jesus, in this passage, through this act of foot washing, is saying, no, we are to lay our lives down for the sake of other people. Man, that's hard. The ability to do this to do this well, it doesn't come from a force of the will, but it comes from a heart transformation. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Do you wonder where Peter was in the line? I do. I, I, it doesn't tell us in the text. I think Peter was last. Last on purpose. Because he thought, oh, I know what Jesus is doing. This is a test. And so I'm going to let all these other guys have their feet get washed first, and then they'll come to me, and I'll tell Jesus, Jesus, I get it. I understand what you're doing. I said, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? Yeah. What I'm doing, you don't understand now, but eventually you'll, you'll figure it out. Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. I would never let somebody like you demean himself in this way. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then Jesus, I get it. Okay, not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. Like, let's do everything. And as I see this event playing out in my mind, like Jesus had likely done many times before with Peter, he just begins to shake his head. It's a little bit hard to understand that section because the foot washing uh, image actually is applied three different ways. And so it gets a little bit confusing. The first way that the foot washing is applied is this way of life that Jesus calls us to. It's at the end where Jesus says, hey, just like I've done this for you, you need to do this for others. But then there's also a way that Jesus is applying this image in terms of salvation. That's why Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. But then there's also the confession aspect to it as well. So Jesus says to Peter, once you've been bathed, you don't need to bathe again. And so the, the point that Jesus is making in that interchange is that for us, we have to first be cleansed completely. That's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus, when we are saved. And when we are saved, we are forgiven freely, fully, and forever. But yet there's that confessional aspect to it. We don't need to get resaved again over and over, but there is this sense of which when we recognize sin in our lives, we need to confess that to maintain that relationship with Jesus. But overall, what I see in this event is this reality that Jesus has called us to do something, to live counterculturally, and the only way that we can do that, it's not through a force of the will, but through heart transformation. So we can't just decide one day, well, I'm going to live my life for the betterment of other people. No, we might be able to do that. I would submit, though, we can't do it very long. The reason being the forces at work against us are so strong and our own selfishness is so strong that eventually we will get worn out and we will find that we are living according to the pattern of this world and living according to those values of stability, comfort, and enjoyment. We can only do this through heart transformation. And it's not even just a one-time act. This is something that happens regularly. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12.1, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the idea of being transformed, it wasn't just, hey, it's a one-time act, but it's the idea of being continually transformed. See, when we come to faith in Jesus, we trust Him as our Savior, God begins to do a work in us through the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us, to change us, so that we become more and more like Jesus. And it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit within us that we can do and be who Jesus has called us to be and to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. And so we have to regularly check our hearts to make sure 
that we are living according to the values that Jesus calls us to live according to and not living according to the values of the world. But it is so hard. So hard at times, you, you maybe even think, well, it's impossible. Why is this even worth it? We have to try because this is what we've been called to do. This is who we are. How was it that Jesus could do what he did, this act that was completely unheard of? It would be really easy for us to just throw the God card out there. Well, he's God. He can do things that we can't do. Nobody else would do it, but he can because he's God. But he's also 100% human. The only reason that Jesus could do what he did is because of his relationship with the Father. To live out this identity, or to live this out consistently, our identity and purpose must come from the Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had gone from God, that he was going back to God. So, it's a connecting word back to verse 3, he got up from the supper and took a towel and put it around his waist. The only reason that Jesus could lay down his privilege as rabbi and leader is because his identity came from the Father. His purpose came from the Father. And so because of that relationship, he could take the relationship that he had with his disciples and lay down the common expression of those relationships for the sake of the disciples. The only way for us to live this out consistently is to have our identity and purpose come from our relationship with God. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God, a son or daughter of the King. And because that is who you are and that will never change, that's what allows us, that's what frees us up to take the authority that we have, the influence that we have, the privilege that we have, and to lay it down for the sake of other people. It grows out of our relationship with God, that identity and purpose that begins to guide what we do so that we can live differently. I believe that what Jesus lays out for us in this text is so challenging that I don't know that I can say, just do these three things and you will have done it. Because this is about a countercultural way of life where these forces are working against us to live according to these values of stability, comfort, and enjoyment. We are called to live by a very different set of values. And it's my hope and my prayer for each one of us today that God would begin to guide us and to help us to understand what it means to serve and to sacrifice and live in humility for the benefit of other people around us. And so as we leave this morning, that's what I leave you with. That's my hope. That God would take the things that we've talked about today through the Spirit of God and begin to use them to transform our hearts so that we just live differently.
Will you pray with me?